Well, good morning. It is great that we can be together, and we look forward to the day, not too distant, we hope, when we can actually meet uh, normally as we once did. And if you're watching from home, it's great to have you join us as well. Let's pray as we come to look back at that passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this Palm Sunday, this reminder that uh, you so love the world, that you sent your son, that as he rode into Jerusalem, he was acclaimed, but within days he was spurned and crucified. And yet it was all part of your great plan. Lord God, speak to us this morning. Show us Christ afresh, we ask. And if we don't yet know him, we ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would reveal him to us this day. And if we do know him, we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be captured afresh by the immensity of your love and your goodness to us. We ask all this in the Saviour's name and for our good. Amen. Well, please uh, turn back to that passage in Luke 22, Luke 23, that we're going to look at together this morning. Robert Louis Stevenson was a, a brilliant Scottish novelist of the late 20, 19th century. He gave us uh, timeless characters, Long John Silver, Aha, Jim Ladd, and all that in Treasure Island, Davy Balfour in Kidnapped. But perhaps his greatest work was the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. As an only child, he was brought up uh, under the strong influence of Scottish Presbyterian parents and grandparents. And they gave him a very deep grasp of the Bible's description of human nature. On the one hand, our capacity for good. On the other, our capacity for evil, Jekyll and Hyde. And the story of Jekyll and Hyde revolves around one man's battle, struggle with that dual nature. Dr. Jekyll is a respected doctor. He's renowned and he's loved for great kindness and care for the community. But at night, having swallowed a concoction of drugs, he turns into the monstrous Mr. Hyde. He roams the street, bent on malice and evil and murder. Jekyll and Hyde captures the great human dilemma and the Bible's take on what it means to be a human being. For we are on the one hand divine and on the other hand demonic. The Bible teaches that there's something of the divine in every single human being. We are unique made in the image of God, distinct from the rest of creation and all the other creatures that inhabit this planet with us. And as such, we are bestowed with enormous value and worth by our Creator. And the stamp of the divine upon us means that we are capable of astonishing creativity, amazing ingenuity, Brilliant imagination. And that's reflected in the world all around us. And it reflects something of the very nature and character of our creator. It's seen in so many different ways. It's seen in wonderful music, brilliant music, 
everything from classical to Creole that express the whole gamut of human emotion, from soaring joy to deep melancholy. What would the world be without music? It's a brilliant gift. God is a God of music. We have the literature of a Shakespeare expressing all the longings and desires in our heart in timeless verse and sonnet. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You can finish it. There's incredible acts of heroism, especially in the face of great wickedness. Think of that young woman teacher acting as a human shield to the little children in her care, as a demented madman tries to gun them down in her classroom. Such heroism. Mind-blowing inventions of technology that we can just take for granted. The mobile phone. An x-ray machine. A laser beam. It's astonishing. Fabulous architecture and engineering. Everything from palaces to porticos to tunnels and towers. Advances in medicine. Today, you can have a heart, a lung transplant. I don't encourage it unless you need it, but you could have one. Kidney transplants, it's astonishing. Brain surgery. And even this last year, the invention in a matter of months of a vaccine that can combat a worldwide pandemic. It's truly astonishing. A spacecraft that can travel to the moon and back. A probe that can go to Mars. We reach for the stars. It's innate in us. All these and much more besides are reflections of what it is to have the nature of the divine God planted in our very soul. We're not animals. We're not a chance random collection of atoms. No, we bear the stamp of the divine with a deep instinct, moral instinctiveness about us. A knowledge of right and wrong. And nothing in all the world in all the philosophies of the world comes anywhere near this high view of what it means to be a human being than the Bible's view. Yet on the other hand, as Gareth reminded us with the children, there's the demonic side, there's Mr. Hyde. Wickedness lies deep-rooted in the human heart. And the Bible refutes the humanist Disney-like dream that human beings can somehow improve themselves and outgrow our innate bias to do wrong. With devastating realism, it, it warns us that actually we are capable of inventing new ways of doing evil. And that's because we are spiritually and morally dead. And the Bible roots that in our innate enmity between God, our maker, so that when the chips are down, we want to be God of our own lives. We refuse to acknowledge his right to rule our lives. So a Christian is never shocked 
They are shocked, but never surprised, rather, by the evil that we see in the world around us. Whether it's on the scale of a holocaust, or whether it's one individual horrendously murdering another. The violence and evil that lies deep in the human psyche and the human being is sadly evident every day, every day. It's unavoidable, it's undeniable. And if we needed proof of just this capacity for evil that's in our hearts, then we look no further than these early hours of Good Friday. But at the same time, as we come to this passage, we must remember that this, these events are part of an unfolding cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. There are two plans that are running here. And they come into conflict in these final hours. There's the plan to destroy. Here's a man, the like of which the world has never seen before or since. He lived a life full of grace and truth. His teaching revealed a wisdom that has shaped the world ever since. His miraculous healing ministry pointed to his uniqueness, the fact that he was God become man. As one writer has put it, 21 centuries have come and gone, and Jesus remains the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as this one solitary life, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Now, you would imagine that such a man living such a life would be welcomed with open arms, adored, heralded, loved, obeyed. And indeed he was for a few hours, on that entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But as we read on in the story, what do we find? We find the shocking, mocking, injustice, hatred, violence of this scene in Luke 23. Welcomed with open arms? No, the only arms that his enemies wanted on this day were the open arms of this man pinioned to a cross in excruciating death with the shouts, crucify him, crucify him. Their collective will is nothing less than his destruction. Luke would flag that up back in chapter 19. We will not have this man to rule over us. Given the beauty of his life, given his compassionate nature, given the gentleness with which he restored the outcast, the abused, the dying. This surely rates amongst one of the worst hate crimes in world history. And Luke wants us to see in this passage how each individual and group that are involved reflect the antagonism, the wickedness that lurks in the human heart when it comes to being faced with God in Christ. 
It starts back in chapter 22 with Judas. As one of the 12 disciples, he'd shared the previous three years in the company of Jesus. He's, he's one of the most privileged men that has ever lived. Three years with Jesus. But it seems that in spite of his close proximity, his up close and personal viewing of the Lord Jesus, his heart was never really in tune with the Lord. He was only in it for the benefits that could accrue to him, that his kingdom might deliver. But now, disillusioned, all he wants is to be done with him. And he's ready to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. His love of money trumps any love for Christ that ever existed in his heart. And he conspires with the priests and the devil to eradicate Christ. That's the first person we meet. And then, in verses 63, 65 of chapter 22, we meet the soldiers. Coarse, cruel men for whom all religion is a joke. And especially those prophets, those preachers, who scare you with warnings about a God who sees everything and will one day call us to account. And in derision, they blindfold Jesus. And they abuse him and they kick him and they punch him. Come on, you see everything, can you? Which one of us did that then? Next, in verses 66 to 71, come the elders, the priests, the teachers who form the council of Israel. Here's the religious elite. They're meant to be guardians of the rule of law. A bit like our parliament. But they despise Christ's repeated exposure of their hypocrisy and their corruption. And for months they'd plotted for this day to come and for what they were going to do. Jesus had repeatedly outwitted them. But desperate now, they, they abandoned any pretense of justice and they grabbed the chance to eradicate him once and for all. A charge of blasphemy will, will do very well. But there's a problem. They can't authorize the death penalty. In desperation, they're forced to go to a man that they loathe and despise, Pilate, in order to get the death sentence. Because it was Pilate alone who held the power of state to execute a person. It doesn't take him long to see that he's being clayed by the priests. Jesus is no terrorist, he's no threat to Rome. There's no substance in their charge, verse 14. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, I found no basis of your charges against him. He could see through it. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Pilate's wife had a dream and she, she was so troubled by it, she came to him in the midst of all this scene and said, Pilate, have nothing to do with this man, Jesus. He is an innocent man. And so Pilate tries every trick in the book 
to have Jesus released. He wants to uphold the justice for which Rome was noted and prided itself upon. But it's all to no avail. The Jewish leaders outmaneuver him and they force him to go along with their murderous plan. Next comes the great procrastinator, the frivolous, superficial Herod. Soon his curiosity turns to contempt, there in verse 11. He mocks Christ. He dresses him in an elegant robe. He returns him to Pilate, refusing to play along with Pilate's attempt to have Herod find him guilty. And finally, there's the mob, many of whom would have been amongst the crowd that welcomed Jesus just a few days earlier into Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now, now, realizing Jesus had not come to deliver on their nationalistic agenda, the only cry on their lips is, crucify him, crucify him. The point is this, Luke wants us to see that each of these individuals and groups perfectly portray the darkness, the malice, the hatred, the indifference that's just under the surface in the human heart when it comes to God and his son Jesus. Here's humanity in the raw, the murderous Mr. Hyde side of human nature and it's breaking out into the open. And my friends, the shocking truth is that by nature, left to ourselves, we all want to be free of God's rule over our lives. And whether we express it in ap apathy or antagonism, our attitude to Christ is reflected represented by one of more of these people or groups here in this story of the early hours of Good Friday. I wonder if you can see yourself here. Are you like Judas, who when the chips are down, decide that your life is about materialism and money? Money is your God. It means more to you than the, the God who's created you. Or perhaps you're not unlike the world-weary, cynical soldier, dismissive of Jesus without ever really looking at the evidence. Or it may be that you're a religious sort. The fact that you're in church is indicative that that could be the case. But actually, when you hear what Jesus has really got to say, you're deeply affronted by his insistence that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. That you're not innately acceptable. That no amount of religious activity can cover up this deep, evil, rebellious side of our nature. The fact is, religion is always opposed to Christ. It's always in opposition to him. 
It will never take sin seriously. Perhaps many of us are like Pilate, living in the fear of man. What will people think of me if I identify with Jesus, if I become his follower? Or perhaps, like Herod, you just wanted Jesus who will dance to your tune, deliver you a miracle or two. It's not unlike the mob, really. They wanted a Jesus who would deliver the good life for them as they saw it now. Truth is, friends, all of us by nature are one or more of these people. Faced with the real Jesus, our instinct is to reject him to recoil back. And there's a reason for that. And it can be traced right back to the dawn of history itself. Because this whole Easter story has been triggered by a malevolent enemy, which Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 3, was triggered when Satan entered Judas. The presence of evil, the Mr. Hyde side of human nature, has its origin way, way back in the Garden of Eden when our first parents succumb to the devil's temptations. And whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, every single person in the world is caught up in this dark, satanic rebellion, this plan to eradicate God. And that is the human plight. That's the human dilemma. And we need look no further than this passage. If we just had this passage in all the Bible, it would be enough to show us the helplessness of our plight, how appalling our rebellion is against God that it could destroy such a wonderful human being. No, there's a Mr. Hyde that lurks in all our hearts against which we are utterly helpless. And by the close of this day, with Christ nailed to a Roman cross, it appears that evil, that the dark side has triumphed, that Satan has won. But here's the wonderful thing. Here's the glorious thing. Actually, all of Satan's wickedness is not the only agenda that's running on this Good Friday. There's another plan at work, perhaps less obvious, but ultimately victorious. And it's the plan to deliver, the plan to rescue. Did you notice in, in that encounter with the priests in chapter 22, verse 69, Jesus says something, the significance of which we might miss. He says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated on the right hand of God. His religious enemies immediately understand what he's saying, what he's claiming, and they latch onto it as blasphemy. For in a nutshell, Jesus is saying that he is the Son of God, spoken about in Psalm 110, the one whose enemies will become his footstool. He is the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who will be given supremacy over all people, all nations, for all time. 
the one who will be enthroned forever. That's why they go incandescent. He claims to be God. But here's the brilliance of God's plan. Their, do you see this? Their very enmity, their very hatred would but kickstart his procession from the cross to glory, his ascension to the right hand of God most high. I have installed my king in Zion. And all their wickedness is, is only achieving that. This is genius. This is amazing. For beyond the cross lies glory for the Lord Jesus when all his enemies will be defeated once and for all and Satan banished forever. And all their wicked plots only serve this great plan. A plan that could be traced back beyond Good Friday, all the way back through the Old Testament, back again to the garden. Because even in the face of man's rebellion, there in the Garden of Eden, what does God do? Faced with our crass rebellion and all the sin and death that it brings into the world, what does he do? He promises to deliver. He promises a rescuer. He promises that from the seed of woman would come one who would overturn the effects, the disaster of sin and the death that ensued. It's all been around since the dawn of time. This is the point. For even in the face of our rebellion, God announces his plan to rescue. It is quite astonishing. And it's a plan that could not, that will not be thwarted. It was so brilliant that it could actually absorb all the wicked intentions of his enemies and the devil himself and turn it to its own use. For when man did his worst, God put on display his very best. And when you think about it, it's laughable to think that a human being a devil of hell could defeat almighty God. That's how Psalm 2 has it, doesn't it? God looks at his opponents, he looks at his enemies, and he laughs. It's ludicrous, it's ridiculous. He is in heaven. He is above it all. He is the great almighty creator. God's plan was so astonishingly well laid, it could not be thwarted. So brilliant that it would absorb all our wicked intentions and turn it to its own use. At the end of the day, there's only one winner. There's only one winner. God will triumph. Good will win. But don't for a moment ever think this is abstract or was easy for God. It cost him everything. It cost him his most precious possession in all of eternity, his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that most famous of verses in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And here's the ultimate expression of his love. He allows that son to be taken by the wicked hands of his enemies 
and pinioned to a cross in order to pay for our rebellion, for our sin, for he is a God of justice and justice must be given. And in his love and in his mercy, in his astonishing plan of salvation, it's not that he's remote or detached. He's intimately, desperately involved. He gives his all. It's right that the hymn writer says, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so great a crown? Now, as we approach Easter, I wonder if you've seen the seriousness of sin. It may be that you're not yet a Christian. You're watching at home online or you're here amongst us in the Liddell Hall. And if that's so, it's absolutely wonderful because I'm desperate for you to hear this message. The message of God's love. But you will never understand the immensity of love unless you see the wickedness that lurks in your own heart, the seriousness of your rebellion, of pushing God to the extremes, of wanting a God who will dance to your tune. Unless you see that, you won't see the magnificence of God's love. But once you see it, as the dying thief saw it, he turned to Christ and he was accepted in the last moments of his life. Is that you? Have you been pushing God out, rebelling against God for weeks, for months, for years now, thinking your religiosity is good enough, cynical at times towards God, really in your heart, not wanting because of fear of your mates, and your friends and your family to be identified with this one. My friends, you can only overcome that by the grace of God showing you the beauty of Christ. He's altogether lovely and wonderful. He's the only one who can rescue you. For if you stay where you are, you remain under his judgment and condemnation. It's the most awful place to be in the whole world. But here he is on this Palm Sunday by his word, through his spirit, calling to you to come to him. Will you do that today? You can do that in the quiet of your own heart. Just cry out to God that now you see it, now you're sorry, now you want Christ to be your savior. It's as simple and yet profound as that. And if you do that, please tell a Christian who can help you and pray with you and rejoice with you. There's no more important thing for you in life than this. And Christian here, we live in a world where 21 centuries later, evil, injustice, bigotry, cruelty still exist. Our culture is one that's gone from tolerance of Christianity to instead seeing it as a threat and positively harmful. It means we're going to be increasingly at odds with mainstream culture. So that when you go back to your homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, you're going to be thought as really quite offensive, even 
for believing the things that I've been preaching this morning about the state of human nature and the innate wickedness of the human heart. The Christian view of humanity is totally different, totally at odds with secular humanism around us. We're totally at odds with its increasing views on human sexuality and identity. It simply means that the world remains a place where Christians will be persecuted. It's still a world of Jekyll and Hyde, of good and evil living alongside one another. And it will be like that until the day Jesus returns. And to be a Christian is to embrace the opposition that comes from holding fast to Christ and his gospel. Not by being, which sadly we often are, awkward or bigoted or angular or bitter, but rather living in a way in our everyday lives, in the places God has put us, in a way that reflects our trust in this good God. Living with compassion and the spirit of Christ who said, even in the extremes of his agony, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Seeing people, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues as sheep without a shepherd. The world needs to see Christians and Christian churches that reflect the love of Christ, that tells the better story, the best story in all the world that can't be gainsaid, that will intrigue as well as repel. This is how God works. This is the culture we're facing. But what an opportunity to hold forth this glorious saviour and this glorious message and put on display what a brilliant thing it is to have Jesus as our Lord and saviour. You see, the cross... The cross shows us the capacity for wickedness in our own hearts, but it also shows us the power of redeeming love. It's a unique perspective upon the world, a world that can only be changed by this redeeming power of Christ. And as Christians, we understand through God's grace, the world as it is, it's totally realistic, the Christian view of the world. But it's not the end of the story. We understand that if a culture is against us, it was against our Saviour. And we're called to follow him in the knowledge that he is in control. And though battles may be lost from time to time, the war will be won. For there's only one victor. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. One winner. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for your love to us in him. And Holy Spirit, please reveal Christ afresh to us this day that if we don't yet know him, that we might come to trust in him. And if we do, that we might see that the, the situations that we face, sometimes difficult, sometimes perplexing, are nevertheless under your sovereign control and love and help us to trust you. Help us to say with the disciples, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. 
where else can we go? Lord, bless us this day, we pray, and into another week may we know your grace in our lives for the glory of our Saviour. Amen. Well, I suggest we stand, or sit rather, and uh, listen to that uh, brilliant, lovely, reflective hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Let's, let's do that and absorb the words, reflect on them as they're being sung to us. And then Val is going to come and lead us in prayer. <laughs>